Hi, friends. This episode of the Pot and Order podcast is brought to you by Tempe. Tempe crafts unpasteurized tempeh using organic, non-GMO soybeans, and it's created fresh for the boldest taste and texture. You can find Tempe's well-loved tempeh across various retailers in the greater Vancouver area. This episode is also brought to you by the Vancouver Vegetarian Society. Are you looking for resources on veganism and vegetarianism, or maybe an opportunity to connect with like-minded people? Well, the Vancouver Vegetarian Society was founded on the belief that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle is the future. It serves as a welcoming resource for anyone curious about a meat-free lifestyle while offering inspiration and education on the beauty and benefits of a plant-based diet. If you're curious to learn more, find them on Facebook and Instagram at at Vancouver Veg Society or go to their website www.vancouvervegetariansociety.com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at The Grid and Goat. The Grid and Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across the country and worldwide, particularly during the COVID crisis. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca by simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. And I want to give a quick shout out to the Grinning Goat. I got my wonderful boots that were ordered in the last episode and they fit fabulous. I love everything about them. So please keep supporting the Grinning Goat during this difficult time. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome to yet another episode, number 52 of Paw and Order. I'm Peter Sankoff, and I am here today across the magic of the internet, because really that's the only way we could be doing it, with my co-host, Camille Abjak. Hey, Camille. Hey, Peter. It's good to talk to you from across the country. We were chatting a little bit before we pressed record about how it's kind of sad that it doesn't seem likely that we're going to see each other in person for quite some time given the COVID pandemic, but the internet is magic. I don't know about you, but I've been having a good time in a lot of ways with this quarantine situation, catching up with all kinds of friends on Zoom. We've had an animal justice cocktail hour, other happy hours, and I've connected with a bunch of friends that I haven't really spent a lot of time talking with in recent years. So there is a bit of a side benefit to the situation. I, I think that's true. I think we mentioned that in our last episode. It is true. I've had some really great uh, 
catch-ups with people I haven't seen in a long time. Um, and I, I still have more to go. I, I have, It's on my priority list to uh, start catching up with some friends in New Zealand now that they're in quarantine too. They weren't when this started. And uh, I'm really looking forward to catching up with them. But I, I will say this. It's funny you say that. And for all the benefits, and you're absolutely right, um, there are many because we do get to catch up. It, it is funny that I, you know, we haven't done a live episode in a little while. And I haven't seen you. But today when I was coming on, I'm like, you know, God, it kind of sucks we can't see you. <laughs> and because we had a couple of trips planned to see each other in April and May, and those are just gone. And who knows when uh, we'll be in the same province next, Camille. So just not, you know, it's it's kind of weird because uh, we do this all the time, but it feels a little different because we have to do it this way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, we do. And I, I was thinking about this last night and, and chatting with someone about it. Uh, it's because all this stuff has been canceled, it's obviously super sad. Um, you know, that's the least of our concerns right now as a global community is events getting canceled, but still it is kind of sad. But it's not like one of those situations where I have FOMO. I don't know if everyone knows that acronym, but F-O-M-O if you're missing out, because everything is canceled. It's not like all your friends are hanging out without you. It's just that we're all in the same boat. So I'm finding that's helping a little bit in terms of dealing with all this stuff too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I, I, I'll be honest, uh, to me, you know, I don't want to get uh, too downer on this. To me, like the isolation part of this is the part that's the least affecting me. Um, that, that's bothering me the least um, in the sense of I'm more concerned about the spinoff stuff than I am about uh, the isolation. Though I will say that... Um, Mother Nature was not kind this week because I was much more happy or happy is the wrong word, but content with the isolation when it was like plus nine last week. And like we just got thrown thrown in Edmonton like the last week of winter, like it's like minus 15 every day. And it's just like, oh, my oh. God. So it's like going outside has become more challenging. And that was my last uh, uh, refuge. And that was a big deal. So it's like now I'm getting outside for just short little periods a day. Yeah, it's going to be a lot better, I think, for everyone in a few weeks, especially those of us who are in not so warm places once we can actually get, you know, some yard exercise in if we have yards. Um, I've been I've been trying to stay busy by long walks, not every single day, but walks as much as I can. And I'm also doing a bunch of home workouts, which is great, actually. I was lucky enough before everything kind of got shut down, I managed to get out to a Canadian tire and I got a few weights. I got a couple of 15 pound dumbbells and then I ordered a few more online from Sport Check and some resistance bands. Uh, I've got basically everything I need for like a pretty good home gym. So I've been doing workouts and I want to give a shout out to two sources of great home workouts that I've been using. The first is my old gym when I used to live in Ottawa, Bodies by Phil. They're on Instagram at bodiesbyphil613. And every day they post a new workout that you can do, mostly with stuff that you just have lying around your home. And these are like, you know, hardcore workouts, but they only last for about 30 minutes. So they're totally doable, really fun. And the other one is a law school friend, Crystal Warren. He, uh, I think he moved to New York and worked as a corporate lawyer and then became a fitness instructor with Barry's Bootcamp. And Chris is on Instagram with his girlfriend doing like these live online workouts every day because their gym is closed. So they like just live stream themselves working out. Again, it's stuff that you can do at home. And he's on Instagram at, uh, I think it's the underscore cuddly Canadian. So awesome content coming out from there too. 
So I'm taking the alternative approach, Camille. I'm trying to see how long it can take for me to literally turn into a potato. Like maybe, <laughs> you know, it's like I just I'm just going to see like, you know, if I do nothing and sit in a chair all day. Like how long is it gonna take? Uh, it's been it's been challenging for me. Like I won't lie, because I don't have any of that equipment at home, and I can't go running outside because it's minus fifteen degrees. So like I have tried to do the indoor workouts, um, really as a matter of my God, I have to do something. But I'll be honest, I've been so busy during the day that I'm finding it hard just to get off my computer. Uh, it's been really challenging because there's just so much going on. So uh, I'm not one of those people who. Is in lockdown vacation. I, I'm not sure those people exist. They might, uh, but that's not me. So I, I haven't seen that upside yet, but I do think uh, you're right. I have to get into that at some point, or I literally may turn into a potato when you see me. The next time Camille sees me, <laughs> the next time, <laughs> that's, that's what worries me the most. The next time Camille sees me, she's going to think it's my evil twin that you know, swallowed me whole because, like, I'll be like forty pounds heavier. Whoa! No, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll get into some semblance of normality soon. Like everyone, you know, listening should know that Peter is still teaching classes right now. University classes have moved all online, so that's been crazy. And and you've been doing a whole whack of online seminars too to help people get in some um, continuing education credit hours and just help people people stay busy. I wish it was just classes. Like, luckily, I keep saying this is going to ease off. Like, I finished one of my classes today. I only have, I think I have three more classes and then a review class and then I'm done. Like, in all my classes, like a total of four. So, like, that'll be great when that's over because it will it will just ease my schedule a little so that I can turn some other stuff. Because you're right, I'm trying to do a bunch of other things. It's been... It's been my mission. I think I said this in the last episode, Camille, that I'm really, I feel an obligation to try and keep people's spirits up during this uh, um, time. And I really think that if we succumb, we're going to succumb badly and people are really going to crash. And I'm aware of a lot of people that are really down and out from this. So I've really tried to keep it up. And one of the things I've tried to do before I talk about the seminars is I do think, and, and you and I talked about this privately, um, that it's important to keep celebrating. It's very easy to let celebrations go and to just get sort of caught up in the COVID um, discussions all the time. And um, this past weekend, we had a really amazing amazing uh, party to celebrate the Gale Cup, which I've talked about here on this podcast before. That is a moot competition, uh, a, a simulated trial competition um, that students engage in that I've been lucky enough to participate in for many years and that we've won um, three times in a row at the University of Alberta. So we had a really big party. Camille online. It was it was fantastic. It was really good, especially because there was no COVID talk. It was all mooting talk. Nice. Nice. Well, I hope the celebration trend continues because my birthday is coming up next week on April 7th. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I almost forgot I about that. All right. And, yeah. and the funny thing is, I don't know if you've noticed this as well. The dividing line between weekday and weekend has started to become very blurry in terms of oh, like yeah. alcohol consumption or just partying. Like I threw up a poll today because like normally I'm doing like an online seminar, which we'll talk about in a minute. Don't worry, Camille, I'm going to come back to your birthday. But um, I'm doing an online poll and I, I set out the poll because I looked at it because next week is Passover. 
So during the middle of the week, I think like I'm going to be busy on Passover day because I do a lot of cooking that day. And, you know, Good Friday. And I'm like, look, it's kind of hard to schedule seminars. How about Sunday? Do any students mind if we do it on Sunday? Like if I did a seminar on Sunday when people could really go out, I'd get like nobody. And like literally the poll was like unanimous. Yeah, Sunday's fine. <laughs> yeah, no one's got any plans. <laughs> <laughs> what difference does it make? So I guess that was a long-winded way of saying we can celebrate your birthday, which is on, what is it, a Tuesday? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Like, we could do a Tuesday party. Yeah, I, I can invite everyone. I, I am kind of sad because I was supposed to have an actual party this year. My friend Cheryl was going to host a really cool actual party. And we had plans to get this cake from uh, Bloomer's Bake Shop in Toronto, which I still might actually get just for the heck of it. Like they are still open for takeout stuff. So I might do that still. But anyway, my, my birthday, Peter, always used to kind of suck because it was either like exam time right in the middle of law school or undergrad exams. Um once there was a federal election during my birthday, uh, I also used to go out to the seal hunt and document the commercial seal slaughter over my birthday. So it's always been a bit of a weird time, but I got to say that this quarantine thing takes the cake. I, I, I'm just, I can't even speak, Camille. I'm like, I'm slightly stunned that you are gonna complain to me about bad birthdays. I'm like, Camille, I would trade birthdays with you in a heartbeat. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that, that is funny. Because why don't you tell everyone what day your birthday is, Peter? Camille was sort of stunned when I responded like that. Yes, Camille's April 7th is so terrible. Like, how do you ever get your friends together, Camille? Oh, my God, what a disaster. <laughs> Poor April 7th. <laughs> my birthday is December 24th. It is like, literally, you cannot. Not, I don't think you can pick a worse day. Can you pick? Is there any? I mean, I guess December 25th. Yeah, the 25th is worse than that. I Marginally. I mean, I guess. But they're both ridiculous. Like, they're terrible days. Like, any days are better than that. <laughs> and you're complaining about April 7th. Hold on, Camille. I'm going to go find my violin. Oh, my God. I, my I can't believe that you are so without sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be honest, as you know, Camille, because you, you came when I held my birthday in October because like I, I couldn't I couldn't have a party in December because no one would come. So I had to actually move my birthday two months up just so I could actually have it. So I'm very sensitive about birthdays. But please, please tell me about April 7th. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you get lots of hate mail for your absolute insensitivity. <laughs> Moving on. I wanted to talk about another thing, which is uh, my Netflix consumption. <laughs> I'm not like a huge Netflix uh -oh. person most of the time. I actually don't really watch TV or anything very often. But uh, on the recommendation of many people, I have been watching Tiger King on Netflix. Have you done that yet? I haven't. I, I have had literally no time when this started. I've watched one series um, but of another show I, I wouldn't want to get into, and I haven't gotten to Tiger King yet, but I've heard a lot about it. So tell me. It is bananas. Like, I've never seen anything is just like there's so many WTF moments in every episode. Um, you know, you watch the first one and it's like, wow, this is crazy. But then you watch the second one and the third one and it just keeps getting more and more off the wall. Uh, it's about this really horrible exotic zoo owner, this guy named Joe Exotic, as he calls himself. It has, uh, you know, a woman loses her arm in the first episode. Um, this guy is a polygamist. 
um, homosexual polygamist, which, you know, not very common in Oklahoma, where he's from, uh, like super flamboyant with, uh, you know, in terms of being happy to talk about killing people on camera. He's got his own like weird reality TV show. Uh, there's this other guy who owns Tigers, who's like basically a cult leader and also a polygamist. Uh, and then they kind of set up this situation where um, and one of the other main characters is this woman named Carol Baskin, who runs the big cat rescue in the States. And they kind of set it up as like a rivalry between her and Joe Exotic. So she's trying to shut down the pig cat trade by um, promoting legislation that would end it. But the show basically accuses her of killing her ex-husband and treats her really unfairly. And it's just, uh, you know, I wanted to mention it because I know a lot of people are watching it right now. And I will post a link to a couple of pieces that kind of like show what the Netflix producers missed, how they misled Carol Baskin and the Big Cat Rescue. Um, they kind of said they wanted to make like the the, the the blackfish of the big cat world. And instead what they made is just a sensationalistic, you know, show that's like very entertaining, but really, really, really glosses over the very real issues about the way that big cats are abused, uh, the way that they're bred and their babies are taken away for photo ops and the way that the cubs are often uh, just killed when they're too big for photo ops anymore. So some some real interesting issues that should have been explored in more depth that weren't by the Netflix producers. And I think it's worth doing a little more digging if you've been watching it. Well, now you've really perked my interest. I'm in a peaked, sorry, not perked, peaked. Uh, you've piqued my interest. I'm definitely going to check it out. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, while I was talking, I, I did want to raise uh, one other thing that I've been up to. Cause I, I, I started talking about the party and, um, my biggest source for anybody who follows me on Twitter, I've been very concerned about what is happening out there um, in my neck of the woods. And I guess my neck of the woods is either law students or, or, or animals, but I'm deciding at the moment to focus on uh, law students. And, and uh, I'm very concerned about what uh, COVID means for students who have lost jobs or had jobs deferred or all sorts of things going on. So early on in this crisis, I think I mentioned it on the last pod, I started to do online seminars um, for criminal lawyers because they're all out of you know trial and they're all sort of at home. So I thought, you know what, let's make this an education slash fundraising opportunity. And I said I was going to do it for a bunch of causes and I did uh, for two different causes in the first couple of weeks but then it became more and more apparent to me that um, my community is really suffering uh, law students who had jobs promised to them have seen those jobs disappear I spoke with a lot of students today who are uh, supposed to start their articles and their articles have either been cut down or deferred or they've had their salary uh, unilaterally cut because of the realities of the market and I'm just more and more more concerned about this. So I have uh, started an initiative that I'm hoping will draw in as many people as possible. Um, and I know how generous our listeners are, but they've got lots of causes to support. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm trying to raise funds for law students so that I can hire as many of them as possible and uh, match them up with mentors across the country so that they can get some valuable experience during a time that's uh, really difficult. I've got a bunch of lawyer friends lined up to supervise and to give them meaningful projects. And now I'm just looking to find get funds, as many funds as I can. So one way I'm going to do that is by continuing to run seminars on uh, all sorts of topics and uh, charge low fees to do that. And um, yeah, hopefully um, um, raise enough money so that I can hire a whack of students and try and make their life a little better during a difficult time. 
Well, that's a really generous initiative, Peter, and I think a really important one too. I've I've been feeling terrible for all the law students who are, I mean, the ones who are graduating and potentially losing their articling jobs is terrible, but losing a summer job is also terrible too, because that's one way you get experience that you can put on a resume and get a job later in life. And I just can't imagine the stress that they're they're under right now, not to mention the financial strain and the fact that they still, in many cases, have to go through exams right now. So I, I really hope that's, um, that that helps and that that pans out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that anyone who's lucky enough to get such a position will feel an enormous weight off their shoulders. Well, yep. And I, I feel it was interesting. I was talking to some students today. Um, and one of the things that I, it's, it's, it's the cancellations are terrible, no question. And, but I was interesting because I was talking to some students today who've had their positions deferred, which seems kind of like, innocuous because essentially it's just being pushed back but what i've what i've realized about the pushback is that the pushback is really problematic too because i don't know if you remember camille i was sort of like when i was finishing my third year of law school i was sort of getting through you know exams on my last bowl of ramen noodles and i sort of had the target date for like starting work and earning a paycheck on the horizon and what happens now is when that gets pushed back by like three four months well you're not eligible for EI because like you haven't started a job and I'm not it's not clear to me that any of the emergency programs that have been set up are going to assist students who are graduating because they lose their student assistance like it is true that they get to defer their student loan payments that 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 has been helpful but like how are they supposed to live is the question in that interim period that's what concerns me a great deal. Yeah, that's extremely stressful. I, I was like in the same last bowl of ramen situation when I graduated too. And the other thing for law students is that they have to fork out like pretty hefty fees just to write the bar exam. So right after you finish, you've got to pay the law society like, oh my God, I think it was like four grand, unless your firm is paying it for you, which people who work in small criminal firms or nonprofits, they don't usually have that benefit. So you've got to fork out all this money to, just to write the bar exam and you're extra broke. So that's terrible. And, and you know, the, the interest free and loan deferral payments thing, that doesn't really help um, because it's actually already the case that you don't have to start paying your student loans until six months after you graduate, no matter what the situation is. So fine for people who are already in the workforce, but not so great for the students leaving. True. Although I think some of those things are being addressed. I do think like the Law Society has always given loans to people who need to pay that money. And I do believe there are there are moves afoot to reduce those costs or defer interest payments on those loans. And I know that for the student loan programs, you're right, they have six months, Camille, but that's being extended as well, I think, because of the, the, the pandemic. So I, I, I share your view. I still think it's terrible, but I think, I think there are, are, are degrees of terribleness that sort of flow into this. So yeah, I don't want to be doom and gloom today, but yeah, that's, that's what's been on my mind a lot. I've been trying to get this program off and running because I think like like whatever help I can provide is is something. And to be truthful, I am just such a big believer in community sharing. And I think um, what I said in my tweet, if anybody wants to see what I'm talking about, I've described this in great detail on Twitter, but it's like what I said in my tweet was, I realize that I'm sort of fortunate in this COVID crisis. In fact, I'm really fortunate because like my jobs have not really been affected. Um, they will be in the long run, especially my legal job, but, but you know, and possibly my university job, we may get cuts and stuff like that. But, but by and large, I've been protected. And of course, to a certain extent, 
I don't want to say benefited because I think that's the wrong word. But like the truth is, Camille, when you can't go out and you can't travel and like all my kids activities have been canceled, like the amount of refunds I've had in the last couple of months. Right. You start to get like a lot of money like coming back to you. And I sort of see that as an opportunity not to just take that and roll with it, but to share it with people who are in much worse situation than I am. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And I would love it if, you know, anybody hearing this thinks, you know, it's time for me to dig a little deep too, because trust me, I am hearing the news. There are people suffering out there and we need to help them. So what can people do if they want to help you with this particular initiative? Oh, absolutely. So all the details are there on my Twitter feed. And um, But if you want, just contact me. Send me an email at psankoff at ualberta.ca and I will find a way to, to put you, if you're a lawyer, Maybe I can find a, a student to match with you. And if you're anybody else who just wants to contribute, believe me, I'll uh, let you know how. Awesome. Well, I hope you get some good uptake on that. All right. Well, considering people have a lot more downtime than usual, we are hoping that you're going to leave us more reviews because we know that you've got the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So we've already got over 100 five-star reviews. The more reviews we get, the more people are going to see this podcast and become aware of it. So I wanted to read you a recent one from Heather Lids. She says, pause up five stars. Where to begin? I love Paw and Order. I'm not a law expert or law student. My background is actually in the medical field. Camille and Peter have taught me more than I could have imagined about animal law and the state of many issues relating to animals in Canada and other places in the world. I'm an animal lover and advocate as well as a Canadian. I feel this podcast has made me more informed about the country. I've taken Camille's advice to write to my members of parliament several times. Woohoo! Camille and Peter have a wonderful banter and I never hire, tire of hearing Peter say Camille's name or tease her about gallivanting around the country. Woo! Well, that's not going to be happening for a while. She says, she says, thanks to you both for brightening my days with a fresh new episode of Pod and Order. I've been a Patreon for a little while, but decided it was finally time to honor your request for reviews. I stole my boyfriend's iPad to write this one since I listened on Spotify. Cheers to you both and keep up the great work. Heather, thank you. That's awesome. Be like Heather, leave us a review. Look, Camille, I, I feel it's kind of unfair to like, I, I, I feel like as with children, I love all our reviewers equally, right? I mean, I do, but I mean, best review ever or what? I mean, <laughs> there were like little bones in there for you. She calls Parliament and I mean, <laughs> you know, brings up gallivanting and couldn't make me happier. So, I mean, I tell you, <laughs> if that's not the best review, it's got to be pretty darn close. That is fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Heather. A reminder, the other way to support us, of course, is on Patreon. You can support us for as little as $1 a month. Just go to our site. It's on patreon.com. Correct, Camille? We'd like slash to welcome. Slash order. Oh, yeah. Slash backslash paw and order. We'd like to welcome and thank you to our newest patron, Arcanite. And that means, Arcanite, that as soon as we have another gift giveaway, you will be in the running. Awesome. All right, Peter, we have a ton of news to talk about. Uh, you know, a surprising amount of news given that the world is kind of focused on some other stuff, but um, you know, life goes on for many of us. So a few of these are COVID related, but a few of them aren't. Let's start with a story out of your home province, Alberta. Harmony Beef Plant. So this is a place where they kill uh, cows and they pack their body parts to sell to people to eat. They shut down last Friday after a positive COVID-19 test by a worker. So um, 
I think the CFIA folks were concerned about being in there. CFIA does inspect federally inspected slaughterhouses. They have to have staff there. And I've heard concerns about capacity issues with the CFIA as well, and whether they're actually going to be able to inspect all these slaughterhouses. There's still a lot of uncertainty here. Uh, but kind of troubles me that one thing we're you know hearing a little bit more about is that slaughter plants are, are trying to ramp up and kill more animals because of food hoarding. And it just makes me wonder, how is it that in a crisis, in a pandemic, when we're shutting down everything that's not essential, we've decided that somehow eating cows is essential? I don't think it is. Well, I mean, I, I, I take your point, Camille. I mean, that's an interesting uh, question about how this gets deemed an essential service and one that has to be ramped up. I also, Camille, particularly, I mean, if CFIA agents aren't there, Camille, how are we going to get all the investigations and prosecutions going, Camille? Like, that's Do my I detect question. some sarcasm? <laughs> that's... Oh, wait a minute. It'll be like every day, right? Oh, sorry. That's right. You know, CFIA is... Uh, you know, really looking at those animal welfare issues, we know that's their primary concern. People think that, by the way, but as we know, the CFIA, there's a lot of evidence to show that the CFIA is generally concerned about food safety, which, let me stress, of course, is a concern. But um, the evidence that they're not focusing on welfare issues, I don't know, Camille, seems to me pretty strong. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it does, just given the very, very low number of cases they actually bring per year. Yeah, that's true. So it'll be uh, interesting to see how long this gets to be a uh, essential surface. But I mean, it, truthfully, it is interesting that like COVID raises those problems. Um, if the CFIA is not in there, it seems to me to raise some interesting questions about how they can go forward. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it does. I think it does. And, uh, you know, in my view, it would be great to see them pull out and say, look, we just don't have the capacity to inspect all these plants right now. So you can't keep slaughtering. But it poses all kinds of challenges, too, because we've got this sort of just-in-time system exactly. where people are raising animals to be exactly. killed on a particular schedule because they're big enough. And if they're not able to be killed, well, then that just sort of screws with the entire system and the economics of it and these people's profits. So it's it's more complex than just not, saying, um, stop the slaughter. Not to mention that the animals, like, there's that question of what do you do with them? Like, again, it depends on the species, right? It's all different. But... Uh, I'm not quite sure, for example, broiler chickens are are healthily able to continue growing. Like that's do you know what I mean? Like they're on that they're on that really crazy short-term cycle of growth. And I think again, I could be wrong, Camille, so please correct me because I'm not an expert on the science of it, but um, it seems to me that broiler chickens that the potential for injury to the chicken increases if they continue to grow. But I mean, I, I, I might be wrong on that. No, I think that's absolutely right. They're, they're typically killed at about 45 days of age uh, because their bodies have been, you know, selected to grow so quickly with such heavy breasts for very high meat content and meat weight that their uh, their limbs are often crippled under their own weight. And, you you know, you they keep growing. And you, you if you don't slaughter them, I'm sure that's horrifically painful for them just like their very existence is horrible so yeah it, it's funny someone actually sent me um a friend from nova scotia shared a photo yesterday of something a farmer had posted on facebook which was the inside of a hatchery barn so or not a hatchery barn but a, a barn where broiler chickens are being raised for meat so they're these tiny cute adorable little chicks right now and the caption was like something like in three weeks these will be on store shelves like that's how 
quickly it happens from yeah, the time these crazy. guys are little babies to the time that they're being consumed. Yeah, it's crazy. Every every it's it's interesting that when I go through my animals in the law class, whenever they see the broiler chicken thing, they're always the most stunned. And I think that's because, you know, it, it's 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 just like for all the the things that we say about pigs and dairy and I don't want to compare different levels of suffering, but it's like of all the animals, it it just seems to me that the 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 broiler chicken has changed the most in terms of what it looks like and the way it, it actually evolves. Like you know, the battery hen chickens look terrible, but they're they look sort of like chickens, and like the pigs look like pigs, and the cattle look like cattle. But like the broiler chickens are just these these strange beasts that have just been you know manipulated by various types of breeding to become this I don't know Franken chicken. Franken chicken. It's like something out of a sci-fi film. If you showed them to someone who lived 100 years ago, they'd be like, what is that animal? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Anyway, it's pretty, uh, it's it's interesting how all this works. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of uh, killing animals for food, uh, we wanted to draw everyone's attention to a really comprehensive piece in McLean's magazine this month. It's actually in the, uh, the print edition, not just online. And it's a piece by a woman named Adrienne Tanner who writes about Canada as a go-to source of horse meat and some of the activists with the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition who are trying to change that. So uh, this isn't this is stuff that we've spoken about on the podcast before, specifically shipping horses in uh, crates uh, while still alive out of the Calgary airport, the Winnipeg airport, Edmonton airport to uh, primarily Japan, where they're killed to be fresher horse meat. And uh, there's lots of work being done by different activists who've brought uh, the government to court over these practices because they believe that they're being done illegally. But it's an interesting piece and it delves a little bit into why we eat some animals and why we largely don't eat horses and why some people in the States and Japan and France actually do eat horses. So I recommend uh, checking it out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I haven't read it myself, Camille, so I can't comment, but uh, I look forward to doing so because I do think that's a, a, an issue that's continuing to gain uh, attention in Canada. I mean, there's even a lawsuit filed against it at some point, isn't there? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Canadian Horse Defense Coalition did file a lawsuit. Uh, they lost. The claim was that the CFIA was allowing these shipments to take place and certifying that they were meeting the, the rules for shipments, but that they weren't actually meeting those rules. And unfortunately, that failed, but it's it's being appealed right now. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but just to point to one more thing in the article before we move on is that uh, there's some interviews with like a Montreal butcher and a Vancouver butcher who sell a variety of different animals. But uh, neither one of them, the one in Montreal, didn't want to be named in the story because he was concerned uh, about, you know, people being upset with his shop for selling horses um another one in vancouver which did agree to be named he said he wouldn't dream of selling horse because it's a nice animal and i wouldn't want to eat it it's a personal thing is what he Mm. said so you know just i think it's interesting to examine our our biases and our perceptions and why we think it's okay to eat some animals why we don't think it's okay to eat other ones like horses and dogs and this relates back to conversations we're all having right now about what people in China eat and wild markets, uh, wet markets, where the COVID-19 crisis came from. So I just hope that in general, we're going to have these conversations about the appropriateness of eating any animals and that this will continue to be a discussion in the wake of this pandemic. 
Absolutely. Now we got one more story uh, that we want to cover, and it's it's really uh, not a story as much as a recent court decision. And we sometimes like to bring those to people's attention, and we will uh, include a link to it in the on the show notes. You can always find uh, court decisions in a in a wonderful uh, free database called Canly, which is uh, C A N L I I dot org, and that's um, this case is called the Queen and Battaglio, and it's uh, it's relevant mainly because it. It, it just came out. It's about uh, came out about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the the citation for our legal listeners is twenty twenty BCPC forty five. And it's 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 really um, it's a pretty straightforward uh, case of distress um, where there were a couple of charges uh, against. Um, the uh, accused person charged under the BC Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. But the reason I just wanted to bring people's attention is it's a very lengthy decision. And, uh, I, I, you know, it ends up with two convictions. And, and what I found most interesting is that the judge really takes the time. I mean, this is a, a case that goes for 275 paragraphs to to really um, examine the charges with a thoroughness you don't always see. And what I found most interesting is, and, and to me most admirable, is the judge really took these matters seriously, both in the length of the reasons, and I should identify the judge. I didn't want to. Um, it's the Honorable Judge B. Dyer, uh, D-Y-E-R. And, and I found they really paid attention to what was going on and tried to look at the uh, the Animal Cruelty uh, Act itself in a very holistic, progressive way. And I'll point to some other uh, points of it, but I just wanted to hear your take first, Camille. Yeah, no, it's an interesting it's an interesting case for sure. Very, very, very long. It took me like an hour and a half to read it. But uh, it goes through a situation where a woman had essentially a hobby farm and she had some some llamas and some alpacas and uh, one of the charges related to a rooster. And the allegation was that she wasn't providing adequate care for them. Um, one of the alpacas in particular became extremely emaciated and uh, actually two of them did. And uh, one of them later died because she was euthanized and one died um, because she just passed away. And a rooster appeared to be attacked by a raccoon and didn't receive adequate veterinary care. And so the judge goes through the evidence in quite a lot of detail about various things that this woman was told about how she should be caring for these animals, steps recommended to her by veterinarians and other people who have much more experience caring for them. She basically disregarded those things. Uh, But I think what we both found interesting, Peter, is how at the beginning of the judgment, the judge accepts as self-evident that uh, there's a duty there that Mm. attaches to animal ownership, not just to make sure that animals have what they need, but that if they are in distress by no fault of the owner, that that distress has to be relieved. And the judge also made reference to the fact that the word distress should include things like grief and like extreme anxiety. And so those are emotional states that we don't often see considered in the context of distress. And so we thought it was an important judgment to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like some of the stuff when you read this, Camille, if you're not familiar with animal law jurisprudence or the way in which these cases are decided, it it could just seem you know, straightforward, like, oh, this is of course. But but to be honest, I've seen cases that are not like this. And I teach classes um, on animals and law, and I have cases where judges take a very skeptical view of the purpose of this legislation. And I think it's really refreshing that this judge starts out by saying, well, the purpose of this act is to prevent cruelty to animals. That's what it is. And they talk about the fact, he cites another judgment um, that, you know, might not have been 
you know, clear or, 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 or cited by others that talks about the concern that animals are dependent creatures. Again, very straightforward. They rely on human caregivers. But over and over, they talk about that. And as you point out, I really like the line about people who own uh, or are responsible for animals have a legal duty to properly care for them, which can include taking positive steps to remedy a negligent situation in which they're kept. And the reason I bring that up, and I think that's so uh, uh, important, is because too often what you see in these cases, I've seen judges literally, when things go bad at a farm, they sort of let the farmer off the hook. Well, the farmer, what could they do? Like this was out of their control. And I think what, what this case recognizes is, no, 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 you have a duty. And when things go bad, well, okay, we can maybe accept that things go bad but then you have a you have a duty to clean that up and you have the duty to do the best you can so i i thought that was significant and i thought that there's a lot in this case that can be sort of um used uh positively in future totally if you're listening to this podcast you probably already know the benefits of eating a meat-free diet but there may be people in your life who find the idea of cutting out meat and other animal products intimidating or scary the Vancouver Vegetarian Society was founded on the belief that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle is the future. It serves as a welcoming resource for anyone curious about meat-free lifestyles while offering inspiration and education on the beauty and benefits of a plant-based diet. They post a ton of resources and information daily on their social sites and regularly take part in events to bring together the plant-based community. If you're curious to learn more, you can find them on Facebook and Instagram at, at Vancouver Veg Society or VancouverVegetarianSociety.com. For those of you who haven't heard of tempeh, well, you're missing out. Tempeh is a popular food item in Indonesia that's traditionally made with soy as a staple source of protein. It's versatile, filling, and has a delicious nutty flavor. The folks behind Tempeh are masters of creating great tempeh and have developed a passionate following in Vancouver for many good reasons. Tempeh's products are always fresh and made with organic, non-GMO soybeans. Tempeh is unpasteurized, meaning it's alive and full of flavor. Tempeh is a superfood with numerous benefits. First, it's an awesome source of protein. Tempeh's tempeh actually has 1.4 times more protein than firm tofu. It's also low in saturated fat and free of trans fat, cholesterol, and sodium. Tempeh is also high in fiber and a source of calcium and iron. If you serve it plain, it's low in FODMAPs too. Tempeh is also naturally gluten-free. So visit tempeh.ca for delicious tempeh-packed recipes and to find out where you can find tempeh in the greater Vancouver area. Okay, and now we're going to move on to the main topic, which is a bit of a closer look at some of the consequences that this pandemic is having right now for animals and might be having in the future. Now, I promise not all of our content going forward is going to be pandemic focused. We are going to try to focus on other issues in the future, but obviously this is on a topic uh, that everybody's thinking about right now. So we think it's important to just take a little snapshot of, of where we are at in Canada and around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of consequences arising from this um, that involve animals. But I will say, Camille and I did speak about this, and I agree. We will continue to raise um, um, pandemic issues in the news section, but we want to move on to remembering there are lots of other issues for animals out there, and we want to get back to that starting with the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, so we've got a few things to discuss. Um, one thing that we already touched on a little bit is the fact that slaughter plants have apparently been trying to ramp up production uh, because of increased demand for meat. And this is likely due to f- food hoarding, not because people are probably eating more meat during a pandemic. Um, there's an encouraging piece in the Western Producer, which is an industry publication that talks about how weaker meat demand is expected in the future once this panic buying period ends. And this piece is from a little while ago, like a week or more. And uh, I think it's possible that we're already out of the panic buying stage. We've, you know, I personally have been in lockdown for over three weeks once this podcast comes out. And I think because people have been through this for a little while now, they're seeing that food supplies are not in fact running out and there's less concern about trying to stock up all the time. So I do hope that we'll see that weaker demand. Um, It's possible also because meat can be a bit of a luxury item, especially more expensive types of meat, that in more tough economic times where people are looking for ways to cut back on expenses, meat will be one of those things to go. And I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case. My my only concern, Camille, is that you, you know who tends to suffer. I, I think that 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 article is very likely correct. But um, often what seems to happen is, you know, you see the chicken producers just getting excited, like, you know, with glee about what's coming. So, I mean, it, you never know. But you're right. I do think I do think there's a potential for shifts. And I think it's interesting to see what will happen. But, uh, you know, I hope I hope that shift doesn't shift to just another form of cheaper, uh, uh, you know, meat protein. Well, true. And, and I think the reason that's important, just so the listeners all have the context, is that uh, eating, you know, a pound of chicken causes a lot more suffering, likely, than eating a pound of um, cow flesh, because so many more animals have to die for the same amount of uh, weight in, uh, in meat. So a shift to chicken would be would be pretty bad. So I do hope that won't happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, no, no question about it. Well, there are other aspects of this, uh, Camille. Unfortunately, um, there is a lot of work going on out there to find a uh, vaccine. I, I don't. I don't mean that. Unfortunately, sorry. I, I probably led into that incorrectly. Uh, fortunately, they're looking for a vaccine. Unfortunately, the methods of doing so are usually not good for animals. Unfortunately, not. Uh, there are some interesting, encouraging reports about some. Um, initiatives stepping or or sidestepping the animal testing issue to see if they can go directly to testing these vaccines in humans. But I know that won't universally be the case. And unfortunately, this is likely to result in a significant amount of suffering for animals. And that's a complex moral question. I know people will come down on different sides of that, but it uh, does make me very sad for the animals who will be enduring suffering. And there's also the question of what's happening with animals who are currently in labs. It's notoriously difficult to find anything out about what's happening in labs, what's happening with breeding companies that produce animals for labs. They're very opaque. In Canada, at least, they're not really subject to any rules about access to information. So we don't really have a great picture of what happens in these places. But I have read um, a couple news stories about some universities uh, requesting that labs stop doing animal testing at the at the moment and calling for culls of, of colonies of mice or rodents as much as possible. But then you still hear, uh, you know, stories, for instance, about uh, the world's largest mouse breeder, Jackson Laboratory, not halting its breeding program. So I do wonder what's going to happen to those animals who are being bred right now for use uh, when labs are closing down because of this halt in our uh, economy at the moment. All, always problematic. 
uh, Camille, this goes back to a lot of the, you know, this, it's amazing how many of these issues have the same types of concern, lack of oversight, right? And inability to know these things because they're all in private hands. And there's no question that whenever we get into a crisis like this, where there is a real, a, a real, there's a real concern here. It's not like the concern is manufactured. COVID is real. But I mean, what, what happens to these animals behind closed doors just becomes collateral damage in a sense like we don't even get to see what's going on we don't even hear about it but you're right the more i think about that i think about the laboratories and the universities that are all shutting down and what does that mean for the animals well in a lot of cases if the experiments can't be continued properly and for god's sake that's terrible enough in itself we're going to look at culling we're going to look at all sorts of things because you know you can't just keep these animals in confinement uh, indefinitely i mean depending on the species yeah, exactly. And and I, I don't actually know the answer to this question, so I'm speculating a little bit here, but I would be shocked if most of these places has a contingency plan for a pandemic-like situation, and certainly not one that takes the animals' interests into account. Like, I haven't heard a single story about universities or other labs adopting out animals that they were going to kill because of this situation. Absolutely. That is uh, 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 definitely yet another unfortunate aspect, but I think maybe... Our next story has like good news-ish, can we say? Yeah, yeah, a little bit more good news. So um, it's, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about a piece from Respect for Animals, which is a UK-based organization. I know some of the people that work there. The headline, I just love the headline. So it's about Saga Furs, which is the major <laughs> fur auction ho house owned by the Finnish fur industry. And apparently it put out a statement announcing plans to lay off all of its staff for a three-month period. And it's saying it's going to be financially in the negative. And this is because Saga Furs decided to move its fur auction online because uh, they couldn't stage it the way they usually do due to the global corona crisis. And the headline on the Respect for Animal, Animals article is great. It says, Desperate Saga Furs moves fur auction online with humiliating results. <laughs> and it looks like for many species of animals, animals raised in terrible factory farms, so just millions and millions of minks, uh, hundreds of thousands of foxes, fin raccoons, and sables. It looks like only about, um, it depends on the species, but somewhere less than 20% of those furs have actually been sold. So 14% of fox skins um, with fin raccoon skins offered, only 9% sold. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's not good for them, which I think is a good thing for animals, obviously. And... This brings to mind something we sort of touched on earlier, which is about meat and the fact that in tough economic times, luxury products like fur are going to be one of the first things to go. So one of the side benefits of this crisis, and I hate thinking of it in terms of benefits, but in terms of protecting animals, this might be something that ends up reducing the fur trade, which would be a very good thing for animals who are raised in just disgusting, sickening conditions inside fur factory farms. Sorry, sorry, Camille. I I was shedding a tear for the fur fur producers. I I just felt so bad for their poor sales that I was just choked You're up, Camille. A I was choked, choked up, tear. choked up over you know the losses that are being inflicted. Um, good riddance is all I can say. I couldn't be happier about that. I I just have you know the fur industry. I, 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 yeah, I don't even know what to say. I mean, like I, you know, my position generally on animal use industries, but, um, 
really there to the extent that I have levels of distaste, um, they, they tend to be on the higher level of distaste <laughs> because like, the, you know, the food argument I think is terrible, but I, I at least sort of get the food. The food argument is so intrinsically connected to who we are, but the fur argument is just like so not, you know, not, not that I'm supporting the food argument, but I think you get where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, it's just, it stands out as a completely unnecessary luxury item, affordable only to those with the most means, for the most part. Well, that's really um, what it is, right? As you point out, like that's, I think that's the difference. It's the ultimate right? yeah. form of privilege yeah, for many really people is. is like expressing their, their financial power and their privilege by wearing fur. Uh, interestingly, too, in this in this article by Respect for Animals, uh, they say the dire outlook for the fur trade contrasts sharply with the attitude recently expressed in the fur industry propaganda blog, which shockingly described the coronavirus crisis as, quote, a small silver lining and an opportunity for the fur trade because they thought that animal protection organizations would be unable to mount effective campaigns. So it looks like things aren't panning out quite the way the fur industry thought. That's pretty funny because of the two things, I would think global recession would be a bigger concern for them than, you know, animal advocates. Like, I, I, yeah, not that I mean, I, animal activists aren't going away. Animals don't stop suffering during yeah, exactly. a recession and we're not going to stop. Exactly. Anyway, that's uh, kind of a, a neat little story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on to what it's like in shelters and adoption and foster situations, uh, there there's obviously a very large network of of shelters and uh, SPCs and humane societies across this this country and small rescue groups that do uh, similar adoption work too. And I'm I'm getting sort of mixed messages about how things are going. So there's some stories that are talking about how there's been a massive increase in animal adoptions and fosters. Um, some rescue groups have reported that they've had like hundreds of applications this month compared to, you know, I think one stat I saw was 223 applications in March compared to 30 in February for, for animals. And they're completely out of animals to adopt, which is amazing. It seems that people who are stuck indoors are thinking about the fact that they can foster or adopt now. They've got a bit more time to spend to get to know a new animal. But then on the other hand, Peter, I'm hearing about some places having to close their doors just because of the restrictions and they're seeing adoption stop. So I I'm guessing this is chalked up maybe to different types of, of rescue models, whether there's like one central shelter that people can come to versus a more distributed rescue network where animals are often in people's homes. Yeah, I think you're nailing both sides of it because, uh, Camille, there's no question. And I have nothing but anecdotal evidence to support this, but like. It's been pretty weird that I have two friends who have posted pictures, one of a new dog and one of a new cat, both rescues in the last couple of weeks. And I think there's something to that because for a lot of people and, and, and if we hadn't just gotten a dog, Camille, we got one back in um, August, as you know, our dog Chili, who is who is who is. Who is the Paw and Order mascot? I mean, doesn't get all that, you know, doesn't get called that very often, but the Paw and Order mascot. But what I was going to say is, like, if we hadn't gotten a dog at that point, like, we would get a dog now. And I'll, I'll say that for two reasons. One, I'll be honest, um, the best the best part of being at home is the dog. Like, the dog is just great. Like, I can hear a dog behind you, Camille, <laughs> barking. <laughs> there is a dog barking in my home, too. <laughs> 
But I, it helps I find, having a friendly, cuddly face around. Yeah, like our dog is just a great source of comfort, especially to my wife who's struggling for a lot of reasons I don't want to get into. But I mean, like she's just, she finds having the dog is just an incredible comfort. But the other thing is, of course, like a pet, to me anyway, not everybody sees it the same way. Everybody's different, but I find a pet a major undertaking. I don't. I did not get a pet lightly, and it's like I find it takes time to adjust. You know what I mean? Especially if you get a puppy or something like, or even a new cat. Like it's like for the first couple of days, it's often like having a new baby. Like you can't sleep because the, the the you know they're they're just they don't they haven't gotten into your routine yet. So as a result, like if there's ever a time to get a pet, like this is it. Like it's the perfect adjustment phase. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm seeing Facebook friends doing the same thing, and I'm also seeing a big push from um, adoption and, and foster organizations for people to come in and adopt or foster temporarily just to keep those animals out of shelters where they won't have as many walks, they won't have as much contact with volunteers. They'll be under lockdown too for a long time, and nobody wants that. Yeah, absolutely. Um <coughs> Excuse me. Um, absolutely. I, I think there's a, a we were really talking about fostering, too, and we just decided it was too much. Our dog is not really great with other animals. And but, yeah, there's no question that there's a lot of positivity. But I also see the other side of the equation. There's no question that for smaller shelters, for rescues and stuff like that. I mean, COVID makes it complicated. I mean, they've got to figure out a way to actually not all, um, you know, some of the bigger, I've been to the Humane Society um, in Edmonton and like, I'm not sure if they're open or not, but like the way they're, their buildings are sealed, it seems to me there's reasonable way to continue doing adoptions in a way that limits interactions. And I just think that's more possible than some of the smaller rescue shelters. Well, I've been reading stories online about just that sort of thing. So a lot of shelters are making videos of adoptable animals and posting those online and, and having like Skype calls with the pets, the potential pets and the potential new parents so they can get to know each other that way. I mean, it's not as good as in person, but I've also heard about people showing up for an adoption handoff where the leash is sort of passed over from six feet away and, and that's it. So I, I think there are ways to do this if you get a little bit creative and it looks like people in many ways are finding them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's 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 at least, you know, again, we're looking for glimmers, right, Camille? We're looking for glimmers of good news. Glimmers of good news. And another one of those glimmers is that vet clinics for the most part have been declared an essential service, so they Hallelujah. are not closing despite the shutdown. Uh, which which seems obvious to me, but I've also heard that uh, it perhaps wasn't on the radar of a lot of governments before they were asked to do so by groups like veterinary associations that advocate for their members. Um, obviously, there's a lot on the go, and I don't think that would be the kind of a mission that a government would make intentionally. It's more just that trying to think of all the consequences of shutting down businesses, you sometimes miss them. But uh, vet clinics are open for the most part. I'm not sure about every single province, um, but I haven't heard of anywhere where, they're, where, where they've been closed, whether or not they've been declared an essential service. So this is good. Um, but one Can thing I, I am Can I comment on hearing, that first, Camille, just very quickly? Yeah. Yeah, because um, I, I I actually think I, it's interesting, you know, and, and I, I, I'm not trying to criticize what you said, because I think you're right. Like you and I think, well, it's obvious. 
But I actually think it's it's symbolically important. And I say that because like you don't have to look very far into our past to see situations where um, tragedies were dealt with by ignoring the animals in the tragedy. And I think that declaring the vets an, an essential service is essentially a recognition of the fact that the animals in our care are part of our civilized society. And I, I do think that's important. I do think it's, you know, there's no question to me now as a new dog owner who has a very young, quite healthy dog that had something gone wrong with my my beautiful chili during this time, like the idea that I couldn't take chili to the 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 vet would be re really troubling. And I say this as well, Camille, because it's not just the fact that the vets are open, but as our ability to interact with people continues to be restricted, and we don't know exactly how far that's going to go, having something declared an essential service is really important because, of course, now I can take my dog to the vet if my vet needs that, if my dog needs that, and and and. I, I tend to agree with you that it seems, you know, obvious and I think we needed it. And in, in one sense, it's not that big a deal. But I think when you take a step back and look at it, I think it is significant for the way in which we're changing as a society. Well, that's an interesting perspective. It, it was only 15 years ago that the U.S. suffered through Hurricane Katrina. And that, I think, brought into stark relief the problems with not including animals in disaster plans because uh, they were forcing people to leave their homes and leave their animals behind. And people were just saying, we're not going to do that. And it caused all kinds of chaos. So, you know, I do think since then that there's been additional consideration for including animals in disaster planning. Uh, but I don't know about pandemic planning. I, who knows what... Um, you know, to what extent this has been considered as a topic before, just because we haven't really suffered through one of these in our lifetimes. Well, there's no question. So, and I, I will say one other thing that I, I really don't want to talk about, but I think it's obvious as well, Camille. I mean, the more that the pandemic spreads, the, the more we're talking about the potential of pets being orphaned, right? It's the same problem. I mean, that's a problem that exists in all cases, obviously, when, uh, when elderly people with pets die. But in this situation, I think the problem is exacerbated by the non-contact orders. Like right now, we're already, again, it seems to a certain extent, Camille, and I hope our listeners understand, I do realize like... When your relatives are dying, like it seems, you know, we're talking about the cat or the dog. To some people, that's going to be, you know, not the biggest deal. And it's obviously like, especially because what I'm talking about here is this idea that, you know, we, God, now we're getting down, Camille. But I feel like this needs to be raised. Um, the worst part of this this virus is the fact that not only do people you know die, but they die alone. And and the concern about that to me is like it's not as if you're allowed to go to say I'm not sure what the rules are about you know being allowed to pick up their pets or or being able to go into facilities. Like a lot of places are on lockdown, and the ability to rescue pets in this situation is is something that I think also needs to be considered. Yeah, no, it's uncharted territory and, and definitely something that policymakers should be turning their minds to. I, I worry about that quite a lot, too, especially when we look at countries like the States, where because of, uh, frankly, just bungling by the administration, they're looking at quite high mortality rates, which is you know, horrible on so many levels, including on the on the level of what happens to those companion animals who are left when their owners die. Um, I shouldn't say owners. I don't usually like using that word when their uh, guardians die. Oh, so, you know, that's that's one of the kind of things that keeps me up at night. Another similar one of those issues along those lines, which could be more of a negative effect, is that although vets are open, I'm hearing stories that in some cases, spay and neuter uh, 
services have been declared non-essential and are not happening. So for new adoptions, they, they might not be spayed or neutered. Now, if people keep their pets in home like they're supposed to, uh, that might not be a problem. But if there's situations where animals do get out and, and become pregnant, then we're looking at a potential baby boom in the future and potential a shelter potentially a shelter overrun for that reason. So I'm a little troubled by that. And I am also troubled by what might be going on with community spay and neuter um, efforts in different places to get the uh, outdoor population of cats and dogs in a place where they're not reproducing as well. Yeah, no doubt. There's a lot to be worried about. It's like every time you think of an issue, it takes you a while. I, I, I know, Camille, because we're dealing with this at the university, obviously in a different context. But every time we think of an issue, 12 follow up issues like sort of spin out. And it's like, you're right. All of these things, I think, are justifiable concerns. But uh, I think the message that you and I have, most importantly, is we can't forget about the animals and all this. We've really got to uh, carefully consider the decisions we make to make sure that animals are protected and, and, and kept uh, close to mind as much as we can in making these decisions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, another one that we chatted a little bit offline, and I think is it bears uh, discussion on the show too, is what is the situation right now with officers investigating animal cruelty offenses? Oh my God, I lose sleep over that. Maybe we should, uh, I think we should, we had to talk about who to invite for our next show. And I, I think maybe that person might be able to shed light on this because I, I am deeply concerned about that. I and, and let me say I'm concerned about it without knowledge of the extent to which, you know, the variety of, there's so many different agencies right now. How many do you think there are in Canada right now, Camille? If we, let's, if we took the SPCA, which I realize is all regional bodies and different humane society names, if we took them just as one body, right? There's still gotta be like 12 to 15 different types of agencies if you go across the country that are examining animal cruelty. Isn't that about right? I mean, it's gotta be at least 12 to 15. Yeah, no, at least if you take the police as one, the SPCAs in each province have, is one. I mean, we have like three, in, Ed we have three in Edmonton, right? We have the sure. animal control officer. It's just in Edmonton, there's like three. I know Saskatchewan has like four different bodies. So does Manitoba. Manitoba engages like, like there's got to be at least 15, 20. And the question is like, what are all their COVID policies? Like we know that the police are still on the job, but what about animal cruelty? Because what worries me is one of the things that lawyers said right away is that what we're gonna see when this pandemic is over is a lot of spousal abuse charges and perhaps domestic violence and killings. And I think that's realistic. But what worries me as well is that another that falls into that basket is animal cruelty. Um, I think when you have a lot of people indoors and you have uh, pets, well, in most cases, pets are comforting and wonderful. But for abusers, that is a situation that is problematic. And the fact that we are not investigating um, really, really troubles me. Oh, and, and let me just say, sorry, to, to step back one second, like if we might not be investigating, uh, that troubles me. Sure. We, we don't really know what the situation is. And of course, that goes back to one of our pet peeves, which is the <sighs> severe lack of information given to the public or to advocates correct, about correct. the state of investigations. It's just a very non-transparent situation. And it doesn't seem like we're going to be expecting anything to become more transparent in this circumstance. 
Yeah, lots to lots to definitely be uh, concerned about there, and, and and maybe that's something for us to uh, look into. You know, as animal justice, not to throw more onto your plate, but it, it, I wouldn't mind. You know, asking for statements from the various agencies on what their positions are. Uh, certainly, the bigger ones, and saying like, what is what is the COVID position? Are their investigations still ongoing? Because you're right, it is it is it is a problem that there's so many different agencies that it's like almost impossible to know which one is doing. It's it's not like you can just look to the government agency and say, well, the police is doing X. We get that. But uh, what do we do in these situations? Well, we'd have to ask 15 agencies to get an answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of close off this section about the effects with uh, one somewhat positive note. And I did mention this last time on our last episode, but uh, just to circle back a little bit for, about egg gag laws and what's happening with them during the pandemic, we anticipated that uh, the legislature would, of course, be on hiatus and far too busy dealing with the pandemic to deal with egg gag laws. And that is the case. So I can confirm that uh, the Ontario hearings that were slated to happen um, March 27th and 30th, they did not go ahead. They, I assume, will will happen at some point in the future once the pandemic passes and the legislature is able to deal with normal business again. But I think uh, what you'll be hearing at that point is very strong messaging from the animal protection community about why it's especially inappropriate to be passing egg gag laws, which conceal conditions on farms, given that this pandemic was caused by um, human interactions with animals. And what we know about investigations, which egg gag laws target, is that they've often revealed not only illegal animal cruelty, but illegal food safety conditions as well, and situations that cause animals to suffer and cause diseases to fester and to grow and to breed. So we'll be redoubling our push to stop egg gag laws, uh, especially in light of this crisis. We know that there's something we can ill afford now more than ever before. Here, here, Camille. Again, hopefully some good news brought on by an unfortunate cause. Indeed. Heroes and Zeros. All right, Peter. I think it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Heroes and zeros, ready for some heroes. Yeah. And t- today, Camille, I I don't know about you, but I was deluged with emails, Camille, complaining about our lack of a zero. And let me read one of those emails to you right now, Camille. It says, okay. "Covid or no Covid, how dare you leave your cynicism aside for one episode and deprive us of a zero, Camille? I think they're right. I think that anonymous emailer who I just like invented is absolutely right, Camille. I think uh-huh. our our public is clamoring for zeros, Camille, and today we have a fitting one for them. Do you want to start with a zero so we can end off with the hero? How about that? Let's start with a zero. It's a very well-deserved zero. I mean, they deserve a lot more than just a zero award on our podcast, but I think this is all we can do for now. Oh, so the zero is the killer of Takaya the Grey Wolf, who some are saying will become BC's Cecil the Lion. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible case. Um, This is Takaya the Wolf is uh, certainly well-known to those uh, in British Columbia. And this story got a lot of play um, in the Globe and Mail. I, of course, like I didn't know Takaya the Wolf um, um, personally, but uh, Takaya the Wolf was a lone wolf um, on a particular island and had gotten over there by literally um, swimming, <laughs> swimming uh, to this particular island. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of a terrible case that uh, he became socially distanced from all the other wolves and was sort of known to a lot of people, uh, became 
became a favorite among locals and uh, somebody just decided, you know, well, there's something to go and shoot. Let me get my gun and I'll just blow away the only wolf, this amazing, uh, exceptional wolf um, um, known as Takaya. Yeah, so we can thank trophy hunters for that. We can thank those guys for killing animals, gunning them down mercilessly for their own pleasure. So thanks a lot for that, trophy hunters. Whoever did this is the Zero. But really, the Zero Award includes all those trophy hunters who kill animals in this way, which is completely disrespectful, disgusting, and just so completely unacceptable. And, and by the way, um, let me just add, because I, again, I, I, I have to say this was not, I'm not, um, I, although we know a lot about animal law, we can't follow every issue that's ever going on. And, and what I was not aware of, Camille, but the Globe and Mail article makes clear, is that hunting regulations in British Columbia allow for wolves to be shot. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing, in fact, and governments have frequently been under fire for wolf eradication campaigns, um, not just in Canada, but in the States as well and other, and other places in Europe. For some reason, some people have a hate on for wolves, which is, which is really shocking because they've already been hunted to, um, you know, decimation levels of their population well so, the only thing we can we can hope for camille is that this takaya the wolf that 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 uh um um sorry um <laughs> that takaya the wolf i was trying to to know if it's a he or a she i apologize i didn't uh, it's a oh, he. he sorry i I, I, I was just he. going he or she um his life will hopefully not be in vain because i i remember that case of that horrible killing of a grizzly bear that made it onto youtube um that seemed oh that seemed to provoke such outrage that it led to a ban of the grizzly bear trophy hunt in British Columbia. So maybe this will do the same thing. Yeah, you know, it might happen. It might happen. I, I think sometimes the power of stories that you can harness from these really horrible situations can really drive it home to people why we need change. And maybe this will be one of those. I think that's right. All right. Well, uh, that is our zero, but we've got a hero, too. We sort of mentioned our hero a little bit, Camille, but like, let's give him a real shout out. Yeah, well, well, it's it's not just one hero. It's everyone who's adopting and fostering companion animals during this difficult time. Whether ooh, you're ooh. bringing a dog home, a cat home, a hamster, a gerbil, a bunny rabbit, there's all kinds of lovely animals out there who are looking for a place to stay permanently or temporarily. And the people who've opened up their homes and given that hope to those animals are heroes. Yeah, absolutely. And well-deserving heroes because we, you know, we started off this and we're going to finish with positivity, right, Camille? Because we started off talking about community and the importance of everyone doing a little part to make this uh, situation better. And just there's no better way to do that than adopting an animal who's stuck in a terrible, nothing against the shelters that are trying their best, but it's a terrible life for an animal that's stuck in a shelter, no matter how nice that shelter is. And I think that uh, people who are adopting and especially fostering in terrible times, my hat's off to you. That's a wonderful, well-deserved hero. Thanks for what you're doing, people. And thanks to everyone who's stepping up during this crisis. I got to say, it's as horrible as it is for, for so many people. And I'm, you know, I've got it comparatively good compared to many, many people. So I'm not complaining about my personal circumstance, but it's it's been tough for everyone. And one thing that's made it a little bit easier is seeing people really come together in a crisis, seeing less partisanship from politicians, seeing people in their communities trying to get along, help neighbors. That's been inspiring and heartwarming. 
Camille, that brings me to a super cool idea. I don't know, should I mention it here or offline? Because I just thought of a great way to bring our community together, Camille. Really? I'm a little nervous when you, oh, when no. you spring things on me as a good. surprise, but let's go All right, for it. We'll, we'll talk about it offline. It'll be, it'll be good enough there, and we'll talk about it and see what we can do. But uh, for now, that's a good way to leave it off with that little bit of titillation for what's coming in future. And uh, yeah. we'll see you next time on the next episode of Paw and Order. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!